How you guys doing? It's good to see you guys again. We are starting a brand new series next week called So You're Dead, Now What? Okay? And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Research shows that most people, we, we, don't like, we don't like thinking about our death, right? But every one of us is curious about it, right? Do you know what happens one minute after you die? What does this book say is going to happen to you, right? What are, what are different aspects and nuances and things about about death as, as this book teaches it. We're going to be talking about that for three weeks. You don't want to miss it. Another interesting research has come out saying that 100 out of 100 people actually die. So very important. It's going to apply to everybody. I don't care how young or old you are, okay? A couple quick shout-outs. Uh, we have a women's uh, conference coming up. You want to check that out in your program. we got a table in the back, and today is last week for sign-ups. For small groups, so you want to check that out if you're not signed up. And then we have a comedian a week from today. And so in the evening, so that's a good time to come back. It's free. It's fun. Uh, invite a friend. Okay? Uh, we are going a little bit in a different direction this morning. It's just going to be a one Sunday uh, focus on one particular aspect. I, I always take three Sundays off right after Christmas. Two of them are vacation weeks. And then one of them is just me planning and preparing and meeting with all the other staff. It's a very busy time of the year for me. Uh, but normally the first Sunday that I'm back, uh, not always, but normally, one of the things that I like to do is spend one week talking about, quote, the church. Kind of, who are we, and what are we doing, and are we playing church, or are we doing church, what, what's going on, right? It's important that we understand what our mission is and what our vision is. Helen Keller, Helen Keller was a blind woman, and she is quoted as saying this, Worse than being blind is to have sight but have no vision. That is not only true of individuals, it's especially true of a church, right? Scripture tells us that without a vision, without mission, a church fails. A church perishes. And so today, that's what we're going to talk about. If you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 2 is where I'm going to be. So pull your Bibles up, pull it up on your phone. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Now, as you're turning your Bibles, pulling it up on your phone, I want you to understand what the book of Acts is. So you've got the, the, the Gospels. The Gospels are the biography and the story of Jesus, okay? And then you've got the Epistles. The epistles are the letters to the church. And right in the middle, in between the Gospels and the epistles, you have this book of Acts. And the book of Acts is critically important because it's the trampoline from Jesus to the church. It's helped us understand where did the church come from and how did it get established. And when it was born, what were they told to do? So it's interesting to look at the book of Acts. And from the book of Acts, you can get some very important information about what are we doing? What should we be doing? Now, I'm going to read to you, and we're going to study uh, a passage that, why I think it's so helpful is because very quickly, uh, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, gives us bullet point after bullet point after bullet point in terms of what should we be doing. What should we be doing? Here's what he says, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42 is where I'm going to read. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and they devoted themselves to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs performed by the uh, apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and their possessions to give to anyone that had a need. Every single day, they continued to meet together. Notice the two locations of their meeting. They met in the temple courts, their big meeting. But they also broke bread in their homes, small meeting, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. About 15 years ago, I had surgery on my foot, specifically my toes. I had what was called hammer toes. That's when your toes curl in, and it was very hurtful. My doctor said it was probably because I played soccer so much or my cleats were too tight or whatever. I didn't care. It was painful. He says it's an easy fix. He says it's a quick surgery. And so he gave me a date where he was going to do the surgery for my, my toes and straighten them out. And he says, now, hammer toes are very easy to fix, very quick surgery. I've got a couple other major, longer surgeries that I have to do that particular morning. I don't know when I'm going to do your surgery, but I'm going to squeeze you in. I'm going to fit you in sometime before or after one of the other surgeries. So just be ready. 
No problem. So I show up to Kaiser Martinez. That's where I was having the surgery. Kaiser Martinez, I show up at 7 a.m. Sandy has driven me there because, of course, she has to drive me back afterwards. It's an outpatient after the surgery is done. I go into the waiting room, and I get ready. They gave me that wonderful little robe that kind of can't hide everything in the back. And kind of sitting there. I don't know why they don't make that longer. But there I am with the little robe sitting on the table, and the nurse comes in. The nurse comes in with a clipboard. She says, David Fossil, Kaiser number so-and-so, so-and-so. Yep, that's me. She says, i got two questions for you. She goes, question number one, have you had anything to eat in the last 12 hours? And I said, well, no, that's the, that's the one instruction the doctor gives us, right? You can't have anything for at least 12 hours prior to surgery. If you haven't had anything, nope, not even coffee, nope, good. Question number two, are you wearing any underwear? Ellen, come again? She goes, are you wearing any underwear? And I was like, uh, well, yes, I am. I don't like going commando. I've got my underwear on. And uh, so she checks it off, and off she goes. And I'm like, that is weird. That is just weird. Someone asked me that. Ten minutes later, different nurse comes in with a clipboard. She goes, David Fossil, Kaiser number so-and-so, so-and-so. Yep. She goes, I got two questions for you. Question number one, what did you have for breakfast? She's trying to trick me, right? And I said, nothing. She goes, good. You were not supposed to. Good. Question number two, are you wearing any underwear? And I'm like, what the heck is going on in Martinez, right? And she goes, no, no, no. Kaiser Martinez, here's what we We want everybody to come out of surgery with everything they went into surgery with. And I'm like, time out. Is that a problem at this hospital? Are people going into surgery with their underwear but coming out and they don't have any underwear? What happened to me? And she goes, oh, 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 you're so funny. She left, which didn't make me feel bad. A third nurse shows up, a different nurse. This is a black nurse from the South, and I say that because she had a really heavy Southern accent, right? She don't even look at me. She's got her clipboard. She goes, David Fossil, Kaiser, number so-and-so, so-and-so. She got, I got, I got two questions for you. I go, here we go, right? But she switched them up. Question number one, she says, she says, what type is your surgery? What type is your surgery? Because of her accent, I didn't understand it that way. What I heard was, what time is your surgery? So I answered, I don't have a clue. <laughs> she looked at me and she goes, you don't know what type? And I was like, no, I don't have a clue. Doc just told me to show up and he do whatever he does. And she looked at me like, you are a stupid, stupid white man, right? She had this expression on her face. And it was right at that moment, I don't know why I said this, but I said, in case you're wondering, I'm not, I'm wearing underwear. She rolled her eyes and walked right out. A true story. Bay Hill, I got two questions for you this morning. You guys ready? No, it's not those two. As much as you want to know about people sitting around you, here it is. Two questions. Number one, how are we doing as a church? I want you to think about it for a moment. On a scale of one to ten, what number would you give us? If we were going to give ourselves a grade, what grade would we get? How are we doing as a... I mean, are we just plain church? Or are we doing church? And then the second question I want us to wrestle with this morning is based upon how you answer question number one, is can we do better? Can we? Do we need to do better? What I'd like to do is, is I'd like to jump into Acts chapter 2, because what you have in Acts chapter 2, like I said, are these bullet point statements in terms of what we're supposed to be doing. Because to answer the question, how are we doing and can we do better, first of all, you have to understand, well, what should we be doing? What should we be doing? You know what? I'm going to do my job correctly this morning if you hear nothing new. Nothing new. Because it's repeat over and over and over and over again. I'm going to do my job correctly, however, if I motivate you to do what you've heard. Does that make sense? It's very important. There's seven principles that we see in this passage in terms of what do healthy churches look like? What do godly, successful churches look like? Principle number one is they are committed to read and to study and to apply God's word. The first thing you hear about the church is that they were devoted to and they were committed to the apostles' teaching, which would shortly thereafter be put in book form called the Bible. They were committed to this book as central to who they were as people, central to who they were as a congregation. Now, I want to share this with you. I, I, um, I don't know if any of you have had the opportunity to visit and go touristic uh, places in Europe. I grew up in Europe, so I was able to visit a lot of places in Europe. But if you ever do, one of the things you absolutely normally do in almost every major city when you're visiting is you go to see the church or the cathedral. 
I've got one example for you here from a, a, a place in Troll, England. The reason I say that is because the church typically is one of the greatest structures in the city. It's typically one of the oldest structures in the city. It's very interesting. Many of them are Catholic cathedrals, but it's fascinating to go in and to look on the outside and the inside, whatever you do. Now, but when you go, however, you have to take the time to really look at what's happening because the architecture and, and the positioning of things have meaning. So when you go to Notre Dame in Paris, you want to spend as much time outside of the church as you do inside of the church looking at the stained glass. Because outside of the church, you see theology in the building. That's what I'm trying to point. Now, you also see theology and meaning in the arrangement of furniture. I want you to look at this picture carefully. I'm not going to give you the answer yet. Can you identify where the pulpit is? Look at the picture. Can you see it? Let me show you right now. Let's put it on the screen. It's off to the side. Do you see it there? Did you know that when you go to almost all churches, cathedrals, built for the first 1,500 years of the church, did you know that the pulpit, what's a pulpit? A pulpit is a piece of furniture that uh, where normally the pastor stands behind or the priest stands behind, and then the pastor presents the word of God from the pulpit. My pulpit is a music stand for logistical reasons because we're moving and we don't, right? That's fine, right? But for our sakes, this is the pulpit. This is where the word of God gets taught from. When you go to churches in Europe, for the first 1,500 years of the church, the pulpit was over here. See, we, we don't realize that because we've grown up in the United States of America where every church we've been to, the speaker, the teacher, the pastor talks from the middle, Right? So what's with the pulpit off to the side? Well, the meaning behind it was this. There's meaning behind it. The meaning behind it is that for the first 1,500 years of the church, they did not consider the Word of God to be central. Do you, do you see what's at the center in the picture? It's the Lord's Supper table. It's the communion table. Now, is that important? Yeah, we're told to do it. But not in front of the Word, is it? And you see this church after church after church. I got pictures for you. I could have put 50 pictures up there. Let's put the next slide up there. That, every church you go to, the pulpit's over there. And the meaning is the word of God. The word of God is, I mean, it's important, but it's over, it's over there. Could I ask you a question, personal question? Where is the word of God in your life? Is it off to the side, in a corner? It comes out on Sundays. Maybe occasionally you might look at it once during the week. Could I make a suggestion to you? For you to be a healthy Christian, mature Christian, for us to be a strong church, the Word of God gets gets to get nudged back to the middle. It has to be the most important part of who you are as a follower of Jesus Christ. This is the first domino that makes everything else work. Get it to the middle. The second principle that we see in Acts is that strong, healthy churches encourage their members to join and be part of a local church. Our local church is called Bay Hills. Now, it's interesting when you look at Acts chapter 2. Uh, the old NIV, which is what I've put up on the screen, says that they were committed to, devoted to, the fellowship, definite article, the. When you look at the new NIV, they have removed the definite article. So it says they were just committed to fellowship. Now, this is why Bible study is important. The word the changes the meaning. If they were committed to fellowship, that means they were committed to what we know as koinonia, to community, to friendship. That's fellowship. If it's they were committed to the fellowship, it suggests and implies that they were committed to the group. They were committed to the team. They were committed to the local church. It has two different meanings. And translators go back and forth as to whether the definite article should be in that verse. Now, thank goodness that all Bible translators, students, and teachers agree that when you read the New Testament, what comes through over and over and over again is that if you are to be a committed, mature, growing follower of Christ, you absolutely must be engaged with participating in a local church. You can't do it outside 
without the help of a local church. Now, I say that because haven't we all had someone say this to us? Yeah, no, I'm a Christian. No, I love Jesus. I got saved at Billy Graham's crusade or a youth group camp or whatever, and I read my Bible. I'm just not into church. You ever heard anyone say that? I'm just not into church. Well, when they say that to me, I don't question their salvation. Who am I to question their salvation? They might be with us in heaven. But I can guarantee you, I always come to the conclusion that they're not as mature spiritually as they think they are. Because you cannot, according to this book, be who God wants you to be unless you are engaged with and participating in a local church. You can't do it. Now, there are reasons. No church is perfect. Not this one. You go, really? No, just hang out with us long enough. You'll realize we're not perfect. We got issues as much as every other church does. But you've got to engage. You've got to participate. Now, what we do as a way to try and help you do that, we have this thing called Growth Track. Growth Track. Just show of hands real quick how many of you have gone to Growth Track. Okay? So let me speak to all of you who have not and tell you why I want to encourage you to go. Growth Track happens the first and the second Sunday of every month during second service in a room over there. It's two weeks. Two weeks. And we answer basically two, three questions. Who is Bay Hills? Who am I? And how do we work together? That's it. Who is Bay Hills? Who am I? And how do we work together as a team? Now, I'm going to give you a personal example illustration that I hope will make sense to you and motivate you to show up. Many of you know that I'm a, I'm a soccer fan, soccer fanatic. I love it. I, part of it is because I grew up in Europe, so I didn't have football and baseball and basketball. I had one sport, soccer. That was it. Right? And I played it a lot. I played pretty high level on youth teams. And uh, then I came to the United States, and I got a soccer scholarship to go to college to, to play and, and, and study. And then afterwards, I kept playing. Then I had kids, and I coached their teams, and they got on club teams, and we traveled all over the place. And I know the game. I love the game, right? Well, this past year was the first time in 30, 40 years that soccer wasn't part of my weekly life other than watching it. Because my daughter's schedule, Julia, and mine didn't kind of mesh together. She's now in high school, and so I stopped coaching. And, and I found myself missing the game. And I'm like, what am I going to do, right? Uh, there's not really teams for me to play on. Well, there are, and you know when they, put, they meet. They play all Sunday morning. A little tied up on Sunday morning, right? So I can't play. I can't coach my schedule. What am I going to do? I had this idea. I should start to ref. I can at least be part of the game. It might be a little bit different. So I told the local league. I said, you know what? I can't coach. They've been begging me to keep coaching. I, I can't coach. They said, uh, and I said, but, but I, I'm going to ref. And they're like, that's awesome because they know me. They've known me for 15 years. They're like, we need people who know the game, who understand the game, who are going to be high-level referees. That's awesome. And I was like, sign me up. I'm ready to go. They're like, time out. Wait. Before you ref your first game, we need you to go to the intro ref class. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. And then I went on my spiel about who I am and what I know. And that didn't work, so I whined, complained, and I groaned. I laid it on thick. You know me. Nothing. Nope. You've got to go. So I sat in an introduction to refereeing class for six hours with 12-year-olds. I kid you not. And we learned what a throw-in was. And we learned what a corner kick is. And what you do when there's a penalty kick. And what offsides is. I know all of that. Right? Here's what was interesting after the six hours. After I went through the class, I, I really, I don't think I learned anything new about rules. But here, as I look back on it, I learned nuance. Here's what I mean. I played the game. I coached the game. I never refed the game. And the nuance of refereeing was very interesting. Here's the pattern we want you to run in, because as you run, we always want you to see your linesman. We want you to see your linesman at all times, at all times. That's interesting. I knew the rule, but now I understand, understood the nuance behind the rule. Now that's interesting. You know why some of you aren't going to growth track? I know why you're not. Because you're sitting here and you're like, I went to Sunday school with Abraham. I mean, I know everything there is to know about the church. There's nothing new you can teach me. And you're probably right. And I want you to go anyway for nuance. This is our opportunity to try. Listen, 
God's given us a playbook. He's got some plays that he wants us to run. We all got to be on the same page. That's it. It's two weeks. Yes, moan, groan, and complain like I did for my ref class. But it's helpful for all of us to get on the same page. Why? Whether you do it or not, here's the bottom line. You must engage with, you must participate in, you must be involved in a local church. You're not allowed just to show up, check a box on Sunday morning, and I'm good. Not according to this box. You've got to involve yourself. The third characteristic is that churches that are healthy and godly faithfully and consistently pray. I have an image up here of a pastor, a preacher from the 18th century. He's a Puritan preacher by the name of Samuel Chadwick. And he has one of my favorite quotes when it comes to prayer. The one, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians, to keep you from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, nothing from prayerless work, and nothing from prayerless religion. The devil laughs at our toil, he mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Question, how many minutes did you spend praying this past week? Why isn't there a line at the prayer room at the end of every service? There has been some program changes that have occurred in the church in the United States over the last 50 years. Do you guys remember we used to have, we don't have it anymore, we used to have this thing called Sunday night service. You remember that? Yeah. We'd come in the morning and we'd come back at night. We also used to have this thing called Wednesday night, midweek, Wednesday or Thursday, prayer meeting. Don't have that anymore. Now, there are some logistical reasons why the prayer meeting doesn't happen anymore. Some of the logistical reasons are these. Uh, life is more hectic today. People work longer hours, if you can believe it, today. Some of that's because of commuting. Um, the family dynamics and structures have changed. So there's more single parents, and they're having to juggle homework and getting the kids here and there, and, and so they just can't even make it. Uh, we also have a situation with families today that today, much more than 50 years ago, both parents are working much more than they used to. Okay, So there are some logistical reasons. But as uh, researchers look at the church, there's also some practical reasons. You want to know what a lot of people, when observing the church, say one of the main reasons is? We stop showing up. In other words, we got to a point as Christians where essentially, by our actions, we said we believe in prayer, we just don't do it. Now, I'm not suggesting we put it back on the calendar. I am suggesting and just reminding us, if we want to be strong Christians, if we want to be a strong church, we must be committed to prayer. You see, it was the Apostle Paul that said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Not through the pastor who gives me strength. Not through my small group leader who gives me strength. Not through my youth pastor who gives me strength. Not through my parents or my spouse. No, through Christ who gives me strength. And the primary way you access that strength and power is through prayer. It's through prayer. So I'm asking, if you're a Bible study leader, if you're part of a Bible study, I sure would hope that you're spending not only time doing Bible study, which is incredibly important, point number one, that we're also spending time praying. Not just prayer requests, because you could spend all your time in prayer requests. Okay, who's going to close us in prayer? No, that don't count. <laughs> Actually praying. Actually praying. The fourth principle when it comes to healthy churches is that they grow in the grace of giving. One of the interesting details, I don't know if you picked it up when we read, but it's very unique of the early church, is that they were so committed to giving, so committed to giving, that they would sell their stuff. Sell their possessions so that they could give more. Yeah, no, sell the car. How are we going to drive to work? We'll walk to work. Sell the car, we can give more. Sell the TV. How are we going to watch the Warriors? Doesn't matter. Sell the TV, right? So I lost some of you there. My bad. Son, sell it. We're going to give more, right? Go into the garage. Look around. See all the stuff you need, right? Sell that. Have a garage sale so we can give more. And this is happening constantly in the early church. I have a list for you of different types of givers. It's not easy to figure, to figure this out. But, but you have different kinds of givers. You have at the bottom, we'll start, the never givers. Statistics still show that between 18 and 20% of people that attend church on Sunday morning, between 18 and 20, don't give a dime to the church in one given year. 
they spend more money on chewing gum than they do giving to the Lord. Now, as someone who cares for you and as your spiritual coach, i got to tell you, you've got to get out of that. You can't be that person that just comes, sits, soaks, and doesn't respond to what God has given. You can't be that person. You also then have first-time givers. We've identified first-time givers. A lot of times people will come to church, they'll visit, right? And, and we've said this. You hear us say this. If you're a guest, don't feel obligated to give. We mean that, right? And at some point in time, something clips in some, clicks in someone's mind. They go, this is my church. I'm going to decide to give. They give for the first time. We're trying to do a good job of sending them a card or a note. Say, hey, we noticed it, and thank you, and it, it means a lot to us, right? We just kind of started that. Then you have occasional givers. Now, occasional givers do just that. They give occasionally. Do you want to know what the number one factor is for occasional givers in terms of whether they give or not? The number one factor. By far, it's not even close. You want to know what it is? Did I like the sermon? Did he have good jokes today? First, uh, first sec- second week of December, I had that cold cough that many of us had in December, right? And I, I tried to fake it, but I was up here and I was just struggling, right? I had cough drops in my mouth and everything like that. And so I... I didn't have as much energy. I hope you didn't notice, but I was trying to fake it. Didn't have as much energy as I normally did. And first service, it was right towards the end of the sermon. And and there was a pause in what I was saying. And there was a a girl sitting right in here. She must have been like 11, 13, something like that. She was younger, right? And in this moment of pause, here's what she does. And I started giggling so bad, I couldn't stop, right? I was putting the poor girl to sleep, right? That Sunday, she was not going to give. Not a good sermon. I'm not giving today, right? But that's occasional givers. If I like the sermon, I give. If I don't like the sermon, not going to happen. Where we all need to at least be, and I want to encourage you, is to be faithful. Let's not, let's not go into the amounts at this point. Let's just start with faithfulness. Faithfulness is when someone on a consistent basis gives. Regardless of the amount, the amount is always very much the same. Which tells us then they've thought it through. They're not just kind of throwing it. No, they've thought it through. What am I going to give on a weekly basis? Or what am I going to give on a monthly basis if you're giving once? Right? Or they get on the app and they give through the app. And they're faithful through that. Then you have what's called tithers. Tithing is an Old Testament law. It's a New Testament principle. It says you give 10%, the first 10% back to the Lord. Sandy and I practice that principle. We think it still is taught in the New Testament. The last one, by far what is taught the most, is to be generous givers. That's what's taught the most in the New Testament, which assumes tithing, which is interesting. Now, I guess what I want to ask you is this. Where are you on the list? Where are you on the list? And what's it going to take for you to take one step up, just one? About 20 years ago. This was a long time ago. I don't. I teach on tithing maybe. It comes up once a year. I don't want to be that pastor to twist your arm. And it comes up Sunday after Sunday. That's not going to be us, right? Every other year we'll do a series on finances. But we'll talk about debt and we'll talk about spending. And then giving will come up at that point as well. Um, but about 20 years ago I had a sermon on tithing, right? It was my once, once a, a year sermon on tithing. And afterwards a businessman came up to me and he said, Pastor, can we talk privately? I said, sure. I stepped aside, and he said, Pastor, do you know how much I make? I was like, well, no, I mean, I don't know how much anyone makes. How would I know how much you make? I, I know where you work, and I'm assuming you're doing pretty good. I mean, I see what you drive, and you must be doing all right. He goes, and he told me how much he made. And I was like, wow, that you're doing good, my friend. Give me a high five. Good for you, right? And then he said, well, time out. What you just taught on from God's word about tithing, do you, do you realize how much that is for and he gave me the amount. And I'm like, you're right. That's a big number. Wow. That's a... And he goes, Pastor, I don't think I can afford that. That is just too big. That's too much. I was like, well, do you think you can afford half? He's like, yeah, I think I could afford half. I think I could do half. I was like, well, you've you got to figure it out with God, right? And, and I, I don't know what else you want me to do. He goes, Pastor, can you pray for me? I'm wrestling with this. I said, okay, sure, no problem. Put my hand on his shoulder. Heavenly Father, I pray for Brother So-and-so. Father, we, we thank you for his job, and we thank you for how you blessed him, but he's struggling with tithing. Father, the amount that he has to tithe is just it's so much. So, Father, I'm asking that just cut his salary in half. Help <laughs> <laughs> him so he can afford to tithe. <laughs> you think 
become a punk now. That's what I prayed. He just looked at me, his eyes were like this. <laughs> you gotta figure it out. You gotta figure it out. But where are you at? Can you take a step up? Why? I will never apologize to challenge you to give. You know me, that's not me. I take it as an honor to challenge you to give. Why? Because when you choose and you learn to grow in the grace of giving, not only do you become a more mature follower of Jesus Christ, we become a stronger church. And if we become a stronger church and you become more mature, the kingdom wins. Amen. I will never apologize. Ever. Now, I don't want to twist your arm. Right? So you've got to figure it out. You've got to figure it out and grow in the grace of giving. Number five, healthy, strong, biblical churches develop friendships with those around them. It's interesting. The second time that it's mentioned that they broke bread in this verse. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. Now, the first time that it's mentioned in verse 42, theologians and teachers believe that that phrase, they, they were committed to the definite article, breaking of bread, which we think it refers to the Lord's table. That was the phrase, the breaking of bread, right? And communion is important. We do it once a month here, first Sunday of the month, typically. They were committed to communion, but in this Verse, I think it's verse 45, 46. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. Most Bible scholars do not believe they're talking about communion and the Lord's Supper. You know what they think it's happening right here? They were having people over to their house for a barbecue. That's it. And you're like, oh, that doesn't sound as godly as Bible study or prayer. It is. It's just as important to a healthy church. It's just as important that we don't live as little islands unto ourselves, but we are connected to one another. God has not called you to be a lone ranger for Jesus. He has called you to be part of a family, to make friends with other people, sitting right around you. That's an important part of who God has made you to be. I typically have pretty thick skin. Um, I understand that no matter how hard I try... Um, and I don't do it on purpose, but there are times when I upset people or what Bay Hills is doing that people don't like. And Like I said, I have pretty thick skin because, again, I'm not doing it on purpose. For me. I'm doing the best I can. But every once in a while, someone will say something and it goes deep. And I remember something. It was said at the building right next door when we met next door about four years ago, five years ago. And a guy came up to me who had been at the church for four-ish months. And um, he came up, to, I, he didn't come up to me, we just bumped into each other in the lobby. So he's got his donut or his coffee or whatever. And he says, uh, he starts talking, chit-chatting, he goes, no, I really like the church, and I work over here, and uh, you know, I like the worship, and I like your messages, Dave, and da-da-da. And then he said this, but Bay Hills is a lot like going to the airport. I was like, what do you mean by that? He says, you know, when you're at an airport, you're surrounded by a crowd that no one talks to you and no one gives you eye contact. And that stung me. I want to speak to those of you who are old-timers. You decide if you're an old-timer. You, you know, and then I'll speak to the newcomers. But those of us who've been around for a while, you do know it's our responsibility to make visitors and guests and newcomers welcome. You know that, right? It's our job. We used to have a rule around here. We haven't talked about it in a long time. It's coming up now. Remember the two-minute rule? This is the two-minute rule. At some point in time when Terrence or I say, hey, goodbye, see you next Sunday, the two-minute rule is this. Don't turn around and talk to your friends. Don't do that. First, turn around and find a guest. Find a visitor. And you can see it in their eyes. You can see if they've been here a while or not or if they're looking or talking. It. Find someone that you don't know. And just say, hey, how are you? Good to see you. Good morning. And then let them decide if they want to chit-chat with you. And, you know, you can read people. If they want to chat with you or not, you have to read the signals. But for the first two minutes after the service, do not talk to your friends. Why? Because research shows that a newcomer to a church, the minute they are dismissed from the service, they are in their car within 100 seconds. So if you turn around to say hi to a friend and then turn around to find a guest... They're gone. They're gone. 
You have to understand. Do you remember what it was like for you when you first showed up? You do. Some of you. It's a little awkward. I don't even know where the bathroom is. I'm supposed to pay for donuts or not, you know. We always tell first-time guests to go ahead and do that if they want. we got a building program. If you want to give, that's what you want. Just kidding. Right? You can... It was, it's never fun to go somewhere for the first time, first place, first time school, first time church. We have to put ourselves in their skin and just, hey, are you new to the church? Good to see you. you know, hey, do you have any questions? Whatever. Let me also say this. For those of you who are in cliques, now normally a clique is used in a bad way. Let me just phrase it just a little different. You know what a clique is? A clique is a really close group of friends. But the negative comes in the word click if we, if, we have, if we change something. Those of us who have, are really in a tight-knit group, maybe it's your Bible study, here's what you need to do. You need to make space for newcomers to join. Does that make sense? Most clicks, you're not in the click, we don't want you. But the newcomers want what you have. They need what you have. You've got to create some space. Okay? Now, for those of you who are newcomers, and I know there's many of you, right? Let me say this to you. If you don't figure out a way to make friends at Bay Hills, I don't expect to see you in six months. That's what all the research shows. Because at some point in time, the singing and the school music isn't enough. And the pastor's message isn't enough. And the free donuts, that's not enough. Because God has created within you the need for community and fellowship and Christ-centered friendships. You need that, whether you understand that or not. So if you don't make friends at Bay Hills, you won't be here. That's, that's what's at stake. So what I want to encourage you to do if you're a newcomer is take a risk. I know, it's a little awkward. Take a risk and do one of two things. One, start serving somewhere. The reason is you start serving with typically the same team and you start recognizing people and you start participating. It's also interesting to me when people start serving, their language changes. Most of the times now, when people talk to me and they're not serving, this is what they say. Pastor, we go to your church. We go to your church. The minute someone starts serving, their language changes, and now they refer to it as our church. Because they're contributing, they're participating, they're helping this thing move forward. Okay? So start serving somewhere. Second thing I want to encourage you to do is be part of a small group. Go join a Bible study. It's the same thing. What do we have? Two, three hundred people here this morning. You never sit by the same people every week, you know. But in a Bible study, it's the same 12, 15 people. In a discipleship class, it's the same 40 people, right? And you start seeing the same people and engaging. It's the same people. So you start to build a relationship. You start to build friendship, right? So join a Bible study. You go, I feel weird about a Bible study. What if there's like a weird person in there that's a freak? Every group's got a freak. Every single group, right? Now, if you're trying to think of your group, who the freak is, and you can't think of it, guess what that means? It's you. I mean, we love you and all, but you're the freak, right? Here's the next one, number six. You got to fully engage in worship. Good churches fully engage in worship. We see that they were committed to praising God, which resulted in the favor of all people being positive toward them. What you have on the screen is a, is a marble sculpture by a uh, Danish sculpture by the name of Albert Thorvaldsen. It is simply entitled The Christ, and it is right now in display uh, at a church in Copenhagen. And the story is told when Thorvaldsen finished this sculpture, he called one of his friends over and he said, I want your opinion, what you think, and... And so the friend came over, and he's like, man, you're awesome. This is incredible what you've done, and so on and so forth. They kept looking. He goes, the Bible, you know, the longer I look at it, there's actually, there's one thing I don't like. And Thorwald said, was like, well, what, what, what do you not like? He says, I, I can't hardly see the face of Jesus. In fact, I, I can't hardly even see his eyes. And if you see the image, Jesus is looking down. Do you see that? And the shadow, you, can, you can't, I can't see his eyes. Thorwald then said this, oh, no, that's done on purpose. If you want to see the eyes of Jesus, you're going to have to get on your knees. You see, one of the components of worship is an act of humility. Oh, yeah, we worship him when he gives us good stuff. Thank you. But how about when things aren't going good on life? It's an act of humility where you on a weekly basis are reminded, you are God and I am not. 
You are omniscient, and I am not. You are all-powerful, and I am not. It has been said in regards to worship that churches that are quiet during worship are, in fact, dead churches. Are you fully engaged in worship? Full engagement means your mind is engaged. By the way, that's why we do new songs every so often. Because research shows that once you've sang a song 10, 15 times, you stop thinking about the words. There are hymns that I can sing and you can sing. I can sing the whole hymn and be thinking about soccer right at the same time. Can't you? Because your mind is, you already know the words. Is your mind engaged? Is your spirit engaged? Are your lips engaged? Yeah, Pastor, I don't sing that well. God doesn't care. He doesn't care. That's like me telling my wife, you know, my voice isn't that good. I'm not going to tell you I love you. She needs to hear it. My kids need to hear it. Your God wants to hear it. He don't care if you can sing or not. And healthy churches and strong Christians are committed to praising God. They're committed to full engagement in worship. And here's the last one. I'm going to wrap it up with this. Strong, committed churches, godly churches, stay committed to numerical growth. It says at the end of verse 47 that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now that's the key. Because sometimes churches grow because they get people from other churches. And some of you are like that. And we're glad that you're here. and We're not kicking anybody out. But let's just be clear. When people come from other churches, the kingdom hasn't grown. We've just reshuffled the deck. The kingdom only grows when, when people come to Christ and are saved because of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's when the kingdom grows. That's what we need to be most aware of. Did you know that last year, 50% of the churches in the United States of America, half of them, didn't lead one person to Christ? 50%. You want to know how many people came to Christ last year at Bay Hills? Between youth group, between Sunday morning, between kids' ministries, between outreaches? You want to know? 67 people. 67 people got miles. We have to care about that. We are unapologetically interested in numbers and growth. I will not apologize for that. Now, every every time I bring this up, I always get pushback. I'll get it today. I've already got it. I don't care. This is what I hear. There's three or four things that I hear. I prefer churches where I know everybody. So do I. The worst thing about growing is I can't remember people's names. You know that. I bump into you at Costco. Hey, big guy. What's going on? I don't know your name. You do know whether it's a church of 50, 500, or 1,000, you're pretty much only going to know about 50 people. You know that, right? Haven't we grown enough, Pastor? Nope. Nope. So you've got to be careful with this. We've been called to be fishers of men, not keepers of an aquarium. And as long as there's one person within driving distance of this church that does not know Jesus Christ, we must want to at least try to reach them for Jesus. And if you don't want to be part of that kind of church, then find another church. It's that important. Our church wants quality, not quantity. And I want to say, why can't you have both? Again, remember, we're called to be fishers of men. I'm not into fishing. But talk to a fisherman and ask him this question. What do you prefer? Do you prefer one really, really big fish or a lot of small fish? What do you want? What do you prefer, a big fish or a lot of fish? You know what they'll say? Both. Why can't I have a lot of big fish? I don't understand. Why can't we have quality and quantity? And the last one, God isn't interested in numbers. Who says? Who said that? You know, I think he's so interested in numbers, he called the book of the Bible after it. It's called the book of Numbers. (laughs) Read the story of the hundred sheep. How did he know one was lost? Because he counted. He counted. Now, you got to be careful with this and not play games because... Just having a crowd doesn't automatically mean you're a good, healthy, and strong church. Let's be that clear about that. 
You've got to have the other components as well. But this is important. No, we haven't grown enough. I see empty seats around you. How about you? Here's our summary. I'm going to have the team come up. You do know, for us to be a better church, for us to be a healthier church, collectively, you know how we do that? It means that individually we all get better at least one thing. Did you follow what I just said? For us to improve collectively as a church, it means that each of us individually improves at at least one of the things you see on the screen. So question, what do you need to get better at? Your commitment to scripture, Bible study, small groups. Your commitment to being part of the church, not just attending the church. Your commitment to spending more time in prayer. Your commitment to getting better at the grace of giving. Your commitment to friendship and Christ-centered friendships. Your commitment to full engagement in worship. And your commitment to evangelism, because that's what it is, growth. What one thing do you most need to work on? What's one thing do you most need to do so that collectively we do better? How are we doing? Well, if you know me, I, 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 I don't give out A's easy. I think we got a B last year. I think we did pretty good. But we're not great. We're not perfect. We've got some things to work on. You see some of them on the screen. Things that we could do better. Can we do better? That was the last question. And I want to shift it a little bit. Really, the question is, should we do better? Do you realize what's at stake? One of the things that most stuck in my mind last year was the research that was done by George Barna that I bumped into in the middle of the summer. George Barna is a premier statistician, and he does studies about all kinds of things, including the church. And this is one of the studies he came up with. Let's put it on the screen. He looked at the 20 most unchurched communities in the country. In other words, communities, cities, where people don't go to church. And he also did a study of the 20 most de-churched cities. People who used to go to church, but no longer go anymore. And for the first time in the history of this study, the same city... And community was number one on both lists. The same location was number one with people who say, I've never gone to church and don't want to go. And number one with people who said, I used to go to church and I'm not going back. And that was our community. Our Bay Area. First time ever this has happened. So the question, can we do better? needs to be, should we do better? Do you realize how much is at stake? When I saw this study, it both encouraged me and discouraged me. It discouraged me because these aren't just statistics. This represents people. people you work with, families that I've coached, neighbors, classmates, who will face an eternity without Jesus unless they connect. These aren't numbers, these are people. It also encouraged me because I realized how much God is depending on us. We don't live in a community like Dallas where you got a mega church on every block. We don't live in a community like Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Sandy and I came from and went to college, but it has the most per capita churches than any other city in the country. We don't come from places like Atlanta or Chicago, even like Sacramento, because the spiritual climate is completely different there, or Orange County. It's incredibly unique in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area. Someone has said that we're operating in Satan's backyard. This isn't Satan's backyard. It's his front yard and his house. How dependent is God on the churches in this community to make a difference? There's a lot at stake. 
We must do better. We must. As a speaker, I'm supposed to tell you what the title of my sermon is at the beginning. I'm going to end with it. You saw it on most of the slides. Some of us need to stop going to church. What the heck does that mean? Some of us, we understand church to be something I check off the box on Sunday morning. And as long as I show up, I'm good. See, the problem is that that, this book doesn't talk about church that way. Oh, showing up on Sundays, there's part of that. It's not about going to church. It's all about being the church. It's not about 70 minutes on Sunday morning. It's about your entire week. Some of us need to stop going to church and understand God is calling us to be church. Let's pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want you to take a moment. What one thing can you get better at? What one thing can you improve? Your commitment to the word. Your commitment to being part of the church. Your commitment to prayer. Your commitment to giving. Your commitment to Christ-centered friendships. Your commitment to worship. Or your commitment to evangelism. What one thing, one, what one thing do you need to do better at? If we all do one thing, we all get stronger as a church. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for our church, Bay Hills. We know we're not perfect. We know we got issues we got to work on. Father, we're doing the best we can with the resources we have, the ideas that we have. Father, I pray that you would take what we bring you, our effort, and that you would multiply it for your glory. Father, I pray that when that list and that study comes out next year, five years from now, ten years from now, that our community wouldn't be at the top of the list. That because of our church and the other churches in this community, we have made a dent in what Satan now controls. Father, work through us. Father, we promise to the best of our abilities, whoever you decide to send us, because we know it's up to you, We're going to do the very best we can to point them to Jesus. We're going to do the very best we can to help them, everyone, take their next step closer to Jesus. Work through each and every one of us. Remind each and every one of us that we're a part of this team called Bay Hills. And we pray that you would use us for your glory. That people would know that you are the one true God. And through Jesus Christ, they can connect. Father, we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.